The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, in 2001, Robert Clement was watching a TV show that was about unclaimed lottery prizes. Fascinating show to watch, I guess. Basically, you're you're watching the misfortune of people who are missing out on a big prize. And as Robert was sitting there uh, listening to a story about an unclaimed Oz Lotto draw from September 23, 1997, it occurred to him that they were his lucky numbers that he used every single time. According to him, he didn't remember to check the results of the draw because he was very stressed out with life at that point in time. So he simply missed out on claiming this huge multi-million dollar prize. At that point, uh, as you do, he lawyered up and decided to go and see if he could claim his prize. But because it was many, many years before and after it went through all of the courts, the judge simply said, you've missed out on this amazing reward. Now, there's something terrible about missing out on something that is rightfully yours, isn't there? I wonder if you've ever had something similar to that happen. You've realised that something is there before you. It was yours to claim, but gone. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that the whole book of Philippians is Paul appealing to us not to miss out on what is ours rightfully because we are now found in Christ. Think about the context of the book. You've no doubt heard that Paul is in prison as he's writing this, but this is a book that is all about joy. He's rejoicing over and over again. This is who Christ is. This is what he's done for us. I want to know more and more and more of Christ. And I think that you could say that what Paul is doing in this book is saying, and I want you to have this as well. I've been reading a book at the moment that has been deeply challenging to me, and it says this, There are so many earnest followers of Jesus who trust in their Saviour for pardon from sin and help in their struggles. They even seek to live in obedience to Him, but they have not realised the depth of intimate fellowship and the wondrous oneness of the life that we have been invited to in Christ. This is just... Hit me for six. I'm busily going through life. I'm getting things done. I'm I'm trying to honour Christ and obey him in the way that I live. But do I stop and realise the richness of what it is to abide in Christ, to enjoy oneness of him in all of life? And you see, as you've been walking through this book of Philippians, Paul has been unpacking the tremendous joy that is available in Christ. It's a theological book, but it's actually a deeply practical book. And here in this passage today, really what Paul is doing is he's showing that being in the Lord affects all of life, you could say. He talks about reconciliation in relationships. He talks about anxiety and joy in life. He talks about our mind knowing Jesus should change and affect every part of our lives. That's where we're going this morning. So the first thing we see, starting in verse 2, is that 
that we have deep reconciliation, the way that we view our relationships and conflict with one another should change because of who we now are in the Lord. Read verse 2 with me. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What does entreat mean? He's saying, guys, I want you to deal with your conflict in the Lord. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, this is the church, true companions, to help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We're not told the source of conflict, simply that there are two women in the church who are disagreeing deeply with one another. And we can conclude that the conflict is that serious that it's impacting everyone else in the church. Why do I say that? Because it's now recorded in the book of Philippians and we're reading it 2,000 years later. Can you imagine if you're these two women? It's like in glory, they're going to be known as the two people in Philippi who couldn't get along. Don't be these people. But notice the way. We need to pay attention to the way that he appeals for them to be reconciled. What does he say? Be reconciled, find common ground in who? Someone yell it out for me. In the Lord. Conflict between Christians is a deeply serious thing because our unity, first and foremost, is a spiritual thing. Think back to chapter 3. It relates to exactly where you were in the last passage in Philippians. He's reminded them that they they share everything together in the Lord. They have been taken hold of by Christ together. That was verse 12. They share the same heavenly calling together, verse 14. Now, here probably more importantly to the issue of conflict, they share a citizenship together which is in heaven and they're together looking forward to the day when their bodies are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. You see, these things that Paul has just unpacked in chapter 3 are not just true of you as an individual, as a Christian. They're true of every single person who is sitting here this morning. We're wrapped up in Christ together. Jonathan Lehman writes this, Our new society of the church is not a mutual admiration society, but a shared admiration society. Our affection for each other is derivative It derives from our worship of God, a God who saved us from a million different communities of this world to become his family. Ask yourself this this right now. Life Center Church, what is it that unites you together? Being in the Lord Jesus together. Being united together in him and what what God is doing through his son, the Lord Jesus, in this world. Your citizens together now with this upward calling in Christ. And Paul is saying, when you're at conflict with someone, this is now the lens through which you view your conflict. I am so tired of living in a world that loves to rage and get angry about everything. Like culture wars, anger wars, you you jump on social media and everyone's just yelling at each other. There's so much noise, yet at the very same time, I see the same tendency in my heart to get angry at others. 
I see the same tendency to want to be right all the time. To be the one who has got the answer to every problem in this world. And Paul's antidote to Christian conflict is that we would slow down and remember that we are together in Christ. Citizens together of God's eternal kingdom, pressing on towards the very same goal, the person that we are at conflict with is not our enemy combatant, but our brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conflict always needs to be viewed in light of all that God has done for us and is doing for us in his Son, the Lord Jesus. Slow down and think practically with me. We don't view people through the lens of our conflict, but rather who they are through the lens of Christ. When I get angry at someone, I see them through a red haze. I don't see them any longer as my brother or my sister. I don't see that Christ loved them so much that he shed his blood for them. I forget that God has this upward calling upon their life in Christ and that we're citizens together heading towards glory. There's this amazing thing when we slow down and remember who these people are in Christ. We've actually then got conflict. Uh, we've got context, sorry, to view the reality of our conflict. There are so many times when I can just slow down for five minutes and, and think about who someone is in the Lord that I get to the point where I go, either A, I'm wrong, or B, this is just not a big deal. And then see if it is a big deal, the right response for me is not just to rage at them through the, the, the red lenses that are over my eyes, but to sit down and pray for them first. To sit down and say, you are my brother, you are my sister. I mean, if you were back in Paul's days, he'd be saying, give them a holy kiss first. I grew up in a country town and many beautiful things. I love being a bush kid, but one of the beautiful things about the church that I was a part of was that there weren't 20 other Bible-loving churches in the area. Now, be careful. I'd love there to be more Bible-loving churches, but it meant that when you had an issue with someone, you didn't have 10 other churches you could go to. You see, your temptation right here, and look, I don't know your situation. This is the blessing of just coming in and preaching a one-off. I have no idea whether you're at conflict with someone in your church family right now, but the temptation in your heart is just to go, I'm just going to leave. But, but every time you resist that instinct, you're actually reminding yourself and you're reminding this other person that we are wrapped up together in Christ. You're reminding your heart and all of those around you that, that we are wrapped up into something so much bigger than the conflict and the things that we might find reason to be at war with one another. And, and Paul is so serious about unity and this, this conflict between Euodia and Syntyche that he tells the whole church, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Help! 
I reckon the typical human instinct when there is conflict is to either A, avoid it, or B, join a side and fight. And your personality will mean that you'll go to one of those camps or the other. And Paul says there is a third way for those who are in Christ, and that is to appeal for unity that is centred and found in Christ. I don't think, unless you're a really weird personality, that you're sitting here this morning, yeah, I just love conflict. And if you do, speak with Jimmy and get some help. But many of us just avoid it altogether. What about the third way, which says, can I sit with both of you and pray? Can I sit with both of you and just open up Philippians and go, look, look, look at who Jesus says we are? And then maybe we can talk about conflict and work out whether we even need to be making this a big deal. Being in Christ affects the way that we deal with our relationships with one another and the way that we view conflict that we have with our brothers and sisters. But then Paul goes on and he calls us that that because we are in the Lord, not only does it affect our reconciliation with one another, but it calls us to a life of rejoicing. Read verse 4 with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Stop and let those words rest on you. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. On Sunday for half an hour or an hour. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, in case you didn't get the first time, he says, rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Some people see this command to rejoice as being completely disconnected from the verses that we've just looked at where there's conflict going on. And it's hard to say, but I actually think it's deeply connected. Either way, there's absolute gold for how we should deal with anxiety and things that cause us worry. But I think Paul is saying to the church that in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of conflict within your church, what should you be doing? Rejoicing together in the Lord. Think about how bizarre that is. Like imagine there's this big, big conflict going on at Life Center. Your instinct is to withdraw from one another. And Paul goes, come together and rejoice in the Lord. God's people are to be rejoicing and gracious. Why? Well, look at verse 5. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. Quite literally, in the midst of your conflict, in the midst of your strife, in the midst of whatever's causing you anxiety, who is near to you right now? The Lord. The Lord is at hand. In a world where there is conflict, in in a world where there is constantly things going out of control, in a world where Russia are lobbing bombs on Ukraine, there's pandemics going on, people are sick, in a world where relationships are breaking down, the Lord is near to us. I wonder wonder if right now you you really believe that, that the Lord Jesus, by his Spirit, dwells 
in our hearts together. Just this morning, as Sam and I got in the car to drive up here, we prayed together. And it was just this beautiful moment of just for me in my heart to stop and go, who is near to me right now? The Lord. See, two biblical truths that should be very dear to our anxiety-prone hearts is that God is both transcendent but imminent. What does transcendent mean? He's bigger than us, he's outside of us, and that is a really good thing. But he's also personal and near to us. I think when the Lord Jesus came into the world, Emmanuel, God with us. And because of these two truths, Paul says that in the midst of conflict or in the midst of anxiety, we are to take everything to God in prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. There's the antidote there. Do not be anxious. Read verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. These three commands to rejoice, to bring your petitions, your prayers, your requests to God are probably a picture that Paul is taking from the Psalms of the righteous life. In the Psalms, the righteous rejoice in the Lord who is in their midst. They come before him with thanksgiving and they pray in his sanctuary because Yahweh dwells among them. The beauty of the old covenant, the beauty of of God's people as they were living in the promised land was that the temple was set up right in their midst. God dwelt with them. They would go to the temple, they would rejoice together, they would come together, they would pray to him. But now think about you and me in the new covenant. Where does Christ dwell? He dwells in our hearts together. You see, in Christ we have the inbreaking of God's kingdom right into our hearts. And each of these commands that Paul brings, bringing your requests, your supplications to God, are actually in the second person plural. Now, for a Sunday morning, you think that's too much English. It is talking to them corporately. He's saying when there is conflict, when there is anxiety in your hearts, God's people are to be a people that corporately gather together. We're coming together, we're rejoicing, we're bringing our requests to God and we're doing all of this not as individual solo Christians. Why? Because we're reminding us in chapter 3 that we have a heavenly citizenship, an upward calling in Christ and there is a day coming when these ambassadorial outposts called the local church are going to be replaced by the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus. You see, I think for, for many of us, we, we do not understand the beauty of what it is to gather, the preciousness of coming together as a local church family and all that that is doing for our hearts. To come together on a Sunday morning, to be part of a life group, 
is not just something that you do for yourself. It's something that you're doing for your brothers and sisters, reminding them that in the midst of all of the conflict in our world and all of the things that could make us anxious, that we are together bound up in Christ. And the practical question might be, well, how often should we do this? Well, look at verse 6. Paul gives us the answer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Everything. How many things are there that bring anxiety to your heart right now? It's all right, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> I reckon if we collectively just kind of got a big list and wrote down all of the things that make us anxious, the list would just be, okay. And Paul says in all of that, keep coming together. All the time, gathering, rejoicing together, bringing your prayers, your petitions, your requests before our God. Why? Because the Lord is near to you. And the promise that flows from that verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When a Jew thought of the word peace, they thought of the Garden of Eden. Order and rightness flowing from the very words of Creator God. And because of sin, you and I don't live in Eden right now. I get that the sunny coast is good, but it's not Eden. But in Christ Jesus, Paul is saying the Lord of peace has come near to his people again. And as we rejoice together, as we pray together, as we give thanks to God, God's lasting peace quite literally will form a garrison around our hearts. You think of a military outpost and you've got the guards walking around. And this is the picture that Paul is giving us. As we do these things, God, by his Holy Spirit, is going to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until we receive the goal of our salvation. Now, let's be really clear. That doesn't mean that when we're inside the garrison that, that anxiety doesn't come and approach our hearts. It doesn't mean that, that there's just going to be kind of this blissful peace where we don't experience the, the difficulty of living in a broken world. But the promise here is that God, by his Holy Spirit, will guard your heart. What a wonderful and precious promise. See, we're to, to approach our relationships in the Lord. We're to approach our anxiety in the Lord. And then Paul finishes off by saying we're to approach our thinking in the Lord. I hope what you're seeing here is that Paul is saying this idea of being in the Lord, as I sit in prison here, I'm in the Lord, and it affects and changes every part of the way that I live my life. Read with me in verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, or quite literally, and so, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any, any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, what Paul is doing is he's saying a life of rejoicing, a life of peace comes 
as we saturate our hearts and minds in everything that is right and true. I used to go on a WEC camp. WEC camps. Who went on WEC camps when they were a teenager? Gee whiz. Oh, we've got one there. That's beautiful. We need to talk afterwards. <laughs> on these WEC camps, we would do memory verses. And this was one of the memory verses that we, we would... You'd get drilled in it. And then you'd stand up in front of everyone. You'd do your memory verse. It was really good fun. But whenever I did this memory verse as a kid, I would see this as a negative command. Don't watch bad things. Don't read stupid things. Don't go and look at bad things. And Paul is absolutely saying that. But it is so much more than a negative command that we shouldn't go and watch stupid trash on Netflix and read ridiculous books or look at magazines or go and look on the dark corners of websites. It definitely means that, but it is so much more, it's a positive exhortation that we are to be filling our hearts and our minds with everything that is right and true because of what God is doing in his son, the Lord Jesus. See, Paul knows that our minds are so incredibly powerful. What did he say in chapter 3, verse 10? I want to, what? Know Christ. Or in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by what? The renewing of your minds. Paul is here reminding them that what you think about will slowly but surely transform the way that you live your lives. And and if it's garbage in, you get garbage out. But if we're reminding ourselves of everything that is right and true because of what God has done in Jesus, then slowly but surely we will live as his people rejoicing in this world just as Paul is rejoicing. Just stop and ask yourself, how could Paul possibly have written a letter like this while he was sitting in jail? How? I think he was daily reminding himself of things like this. There is a day coming when every knee will bow before the exalted Christ. Philippians 2. There is a day coming when every knee is going to bow. And so right now I know Christ and I have gained his righteousness. He's reminding himself that even as he sits in jail, he's pressing on towards the upward call of God in Christ. He's reminding himself that he's just passing in this world and that heaven is his home. He would have been reminding himself that this lowly body is going to be transformed into something glorious. A couple of Saturday mornings ago, I was having a conversation with our neighbour and it deeply troubled my heart. It was a Saturday morning and to be honest, beautiful sunny day, I wanted to drink my coffee and not think about anything heavy. But you know when you go out and you start talking to your neighbour and you can tell that it's a big chat, right? It was one of those mornings. And our neighbour said to me, Josh, what is wrong with this world? She'd lost three friends in the past month two of them to suicide, and then we just heard the news that Paul Green, the former Townsville Cowboys coach, had taken his life and he lived in the street next to us. 
What is wrong with this world? And, and, and as Christians, you, you look around, you put the six o'clock news on, and, and you sit there, I'm, I'm sitting there, yes, what is wrong with this world? What is wrong with this world? And we should have a deep sense of compassion and sadness for those who are lost and without Christ. But more than anything, what you and I need over and over and over again is this is what is now true because of Christ. Before you had Jesus, yes, you were lost and hopeless without a saviour, without a shepherd in your life. But now you are in him. Before Jesus, yes, all of this is just purposeless nonsense. But now you know who you are in this world and what you are doing. As you look around at this world, yes, it looks so hopeless, but there is a day coming when Jesus himself is going to return. You see, like the, the big problem with the six o'clock news, for my heart at least, is that you get to the end of it, and, and I just feel this collective sense of like, oh. But there's, there's nothing at the end that says, news flash. Good news, the Lord has come near. The Lord has come near. And there is a, a day coming when he will be the one who will wipe away every tear from every eye. And as you walk in this world, dear Christian, remember your upward call in Christ. Remember that you're not wrapped up in this story of brokenness and sadness anymore. You're on this grand restoration project. Won't you join in with all that Christ is doing? At the moment, as a church family, we're going through the book of Esther, and each week we've decided we're going to interview some people about how they saw God work in really difficult situations. And just last week, you know, we asked someone to get up and you think, oh, it'll be good, but you have no idea how profoundly it's going to hit people. There's this missionary couple that served the Lord in Asia and they lost one of their children in a tragic bus accident when on the mission field. There were many other missionary kids who also died at the same time. And as Peter and Rosemary were, were sharing their story, you just, you're just profoundly impacted thinking, how could anyone even get up the next day? But these were their words, we never doubted the goodness of God because we knew that Johnny was with Jesus. Now, if you know this couple, you know that Scripture just oozes out of them. The truths of the gospel are just constantly marinating in their lives. And time and time again, Peter, Peter and Rosemary kept saying, we, we have every reason to keep rejoicing in God, even in the midst of that, because we know what God is doing in this world through his son, the Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul is saying to us this morning, that it doesn't matter what is going on in your life, you have reason not for naive joy, but deep-seated rejoicing because this is what God is doing in our lives too. How, how do we do this? How do we do what Paul is saying? To think on that which is honourable, 
just, pure, lovely, commendable? Well, here's a very simple suggestion. Start with scripture memorization. I'm constantly challenged by the oldies in our church that they know their Bibles better than me. Okay? And I reckon if we did a survey here this morning, we won't, it's all right. I'd be backing the oldies to know a lot more scripture than those who are under the age of 35. Okay? How do you do it? Well, there's many good apps you can get on your phone with, with scripture. Uh, that can help you with memorization. But my wife's great. She just writes things on a card and puts it around the place. <laughs> Do that. But, but try to be structured. Become accountable to someone else. Keep depositing things in your heart and mind because what Paul is talking about here is about preparing yourself ahead of time, okay? You, you see, if you want to be held and found rejoicing even in the midst of the darkest nights in your lives, you need to be preparing before those moments come and arrive. How is it possible that Peter and Rosemary could keep rejoicing even after their son Johnny had gone to be with the Lord? Because they had deposited that which was true, that which was honourable, that which is just, that which is pure and that which is lovely over and over and over and over in their hearts so that it forms something of a deep rock in their soul. How could Paul rejoice in prison? Well, he'd done this. How could Peter and Rosemary rejoice when their son passed away and went to be with the Lord in the most tragic of situations? Because they had done this. And, and, and here Paul is looking at each and every one of us, and he's saying, look, you can look at this book and you can go, oh, it's just an apostle telling you about how to rejoice in life. Well, I'm not an apostle. Just look down at the very last verse, verse 9. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things in the Lord, and the God of peace will be with you. What he's saying to you right now is that you and I can sit here this morning and we can really easily say, oh, that's great for you, you're an apostle, and walk out of here and go, I'm going to pass. And he's saying to you, what rubbish. This morning, what you have seen in my life, what you're seeing in this letter is absolutely possible for you as well. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you this morning, dear Christian. See, Paul is showing us that being connected to Christ is like being connected to the headwaters of a great tributary. And like Paul, the implications of being found in Christ are to work its way out into every single part of our lives. Maybe this morning, I don't know, you're, you're here and you're at war with someone in this church family. You might not use those words. Paul is saying, see that person as someone who is in the Lord. Go and ask them if you can pray with them. And try to put this right. And if you need brothers and sisters to come around you and to pray and to work with you in the Lord, then do it this morning. This is the joy of being found in Christ. Maybe this morning you're someone who is really anxious about something that is going on in your life. Well, when Sunday morning comes around and the temptation is not to go and rejoice with your brothers and sisters, come. 
Maybe you're not part of a life group yet. You need to go and chat to Jimmy and say, I need to be part of a life group. I need brothers and sisters around me. Maybe this morning you need to start doing some scripture memorization, reading your Bible daily. You see, the very resurrection power of God is to be daily found at work in our lives until we receive the goal of our salvation. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with a lady in our church and she came up to me and she said this, Josh, I had no idea what God wanted to do in my life right now. As a pastor, I was a little bit kind of like, I'm not sure what's going on here. But as she explained, she, she more or less confessed and said, look, I, I knew that I was saved for heaven, but I had no idea what God wanted to do right now. And then kind of like, you know, you could see this big spiritual smile on her face. It's like she's finally worked out that, that Jesus is for all of life right now. He's not just our ticket to heaven. And, and this is exactly what Paul was saying to each and every one of us. Being found in Christ is right now business. Our relationships, our anxiety, the way that we think and the things that we meditate upon every part of our lives. Consumed in Christ. Rejoicing in Christ. And maybe that's you this morning. You've kind of been thinking, look, I'm glad that I'm safe for heaven because I don't like the alternative. But being in Christ doesn't change everything for you. And if this is you this morning, I want to say this is the most exciting news ever because all of the lights begin to come on when we go, I'm in Christ now. Everything changes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.